Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, trust you've come prepared to see what God has for us as we study Exodus 18 together. As Michael read the passage earlier, these 27 verses are all about Jethro visiting Moses and his counsel as to those things that he observed in Moses' life. When I first began to study this scripture, it reminded me of a booklet written years ago by a man named Charles Hummel. And the name of the booklet was titled, Tyranny the Urgent. Within this booklet, Hummel discusses the tendency of many people to prioritize tasks that are deemed urgent over those tasks that are most important and really matter in life. Tyranny can be defined as oppressive power upon a person, like a, a pressing my finger down on this podium, just pressing as hard as I can. A squeezing in someone's life that over a period of time can lead to a sense of being totally overwhelmed. A feeling like you're constantly putting out fires, leaving no time for those things that are really important each and every day. It reminded me of these vice grips. And when you clamp on, it's not, you're not going to get loose. A squeezing, a pressure that you feel like there's no way out. Any of you ever felt that way? I mean, I know I have at times. As I thought about these overwhelming demands of the urgent constantly pressing down upon a person and in turn keeping them from the important priorities, it reminded me of a few of my employees that have said to me over the 40 plus years I've worked at this company, they've come into my office, they close the door, and they say, can I talk to you? To which I say, sure. And they say, I can't do this anymore. I'm burning the candle at both ends and about to break. I'm ready to give up, or I'm barely keeping my head above water, or I'm simply burned out. God timed this message perfectly. When I started going down this road of burnout, little did I realize, this was weeks ago, that this week on Wednesday, one of my key employees who runs a major company for me and has for years, came into my office. And he said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And he said, I'm turning in my resignation. I'm burned out. I mean, I was shocked. I said, God, what are you doing here? Tyranny of the urgent. Burnout can happen to anyone, even those outside of the workplace. Men, women, young and old, but especially those who are in leadership positions. Even leadership positions within a church. Why? Often it's because such people find themselves facing impossible expectations and demands. Or there is a sense of failure due to not achieving certain goals in that he or she may have. Or burnout may come simply due to sheer physical and mental exhaustion and a frustration that comes upon a person when he, he or she loses all hope of meeting the standard imposed on them, either by themselves, others, or both. 
It's at this point that they say, throw in the towel. I tell my wife, it's like this gentleman who is in my office has all this pressure, burnout, and he throws it to me. The pressure goes to me. So how am I going to handle it? As I was thinking about Moses in a leadership role, I actually did a little research on burnout, especially as it applies to pastors. This is what I found. Approximately 1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their current role as pastors and wives. 70% said the only time they spend studying the Word is when they are preparing their sermons. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who entered the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years. 90% of pastors said that their seminary or Bible school training did only a fair to poor job preparing them for ministry. Pastors are 35% more likely to be terminated if they work less than 50 hours a week. 80% of pastors believe their ministry negatively affects their families. 80% of pastors say they do not have sufficient time to spend with their spouse. And lastly, 45% of all pastors have experienced burnout or depression and had to take a break from their ministry. Now, let me assure you that I don't see any of these concerns here in our church. I am very privileged and thankful to work alongside Kent and Phil, as well as our deacons. And we, we share the workload. That is so important. There isn't this pressure to do it all by yourself. In fact, um, Friday night, I had 30 people who helped in that banquet. It wasn't just on one. It was on everybody. Everybody shared the load. But burnout can be a problem and can affect almost anyone, even maybe some of you. So let me ask you, any of you ever feel overwhelmed by crisis after crisis? Have you ever wished for a 30-hour day? Just six more hours. That's all I need to relieve the tremendous pressure I'm under. Then I could get everything done. But really think about it. Would a 30-hour day actually solve the problem? Wouldn't we soon be just as frustrated as we are now with our 24-hour day? You've heard the common cliche, a mother's work is never done. But isn't that true of any student or teacher or businessman, or supervisor, or employee, or even a pastor. Everyone in their own hearts can feel like there's no one as busy as I am. But everyone is. That's the pressure of the tyranny of the urgent. The Bible is very clear that as Christians, we are to redeem the time. Ephesians 5, see then you walk circumspectively or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. We are to seize every opportunity the Lord gives us. Yet when we stop and do a thorough analysis of our busy days, could it be that our dilemma at hand 
goes deeper than the shortage of time? Could it simply be the problem of priorities? Keeping the main thing, the main thing? In other words, keeping the really important things in clear focus and not becoming consumed by the constant bombarding of the urgent? I like what C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our passage today, Moses was doing a lot. In fact, it was probably way too much. Yet he was not seeing the problem at hand. That's where Jezreel comes along and offers wise leadership counsel. Counsel about keeping the important things important and not to end up running on empty. It was very wise counsel. And so was that extra long introduction. The title for today's message is simply that, Wise Leadership Counsel. So let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for this passage here in Exodus, for what you taught me, what I've actually experienced personally even this week. And I thank you for just your word that gives us just exactly what we need. This overwhelming pressure that all of us face due to the busy lives we lead. Lord, in the priority, the main priority of keeping you as the number one. I thank you for uh, each person here. Pray that they would be just encouraged with your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I broke this passage up into two sections. And the first one is section verses 1 through 12. So follow along as I read this. When Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of which the name of one was Gershom, for he has said, I have been an alien in a strange land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for the God of my father said he was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh." And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness, where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I am thy father-in-law. I, thy father-in-law, Jethro, am come unto thee and thy wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other their welfare, and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the travail that had come upon them by the way, and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the land of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of the Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. I called this first section Jethro's timely arrival. Although Jethro is introduced in verse 1 as a Midian priest, throughout the rest of this chapter he's described only as Moses' father-in-law indicating that his relationship to Moses primarily defines who Jethro is and not his religious status. Some commentators believe that Jethro was actually the son of Ruel, 
with Ruel being the actual father-in-law of Moses. If this was the case, then Jethro would be the brother-in-law and not the father-in-law. Some scholars have come to this conclusion because the definition here of father-in-law is translated clothing, which means relative by marriage, implying more of a brother-in-law status. However, the majority of commentaries that I respect, each of them stick with father-in-law. And I would concur as well. And verse 1 tells us that Jethro heard of all that God had done for Israel. And so in verses 2 through 4, he took Zipporah, Moses' wife, and their sons Gershom and Eliezer, Eliezer to reunite them back with Moses. Apparently Moses sent his family to Midian at some time, perhaps during the plagues of Egypt, as he foresaw the troubles to which his wife and children were likely to be exposed to. It's interesting that the explanation of their names is given here. Gershom, an alien in a strange land, and Eliezer, God is my help, representing both the Lord's help in delivering Moses from the sword of Pharaoh, along with the exodus and escape from Egypt to God's promised land. If we move on to verses 5 through 7, we see a very special relationship between Moses and Jethro. For Moses welcomes his father-in-law warmly and affectionately, probably recalling how years earlier Jethro had been with Moses when he was shepherding Jethro's flock in Horeb prior to being commissioned by the Lord. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 3, it says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. No doubt it was a special reunion as they caught up with what had taken place in each of their lives. I'm going to take a bit of a rabbit trail here because I thought about this relationship between Moses and Jethro. And it reminded me of the same relationship that I have with my own father-in-law. It's a great relationship. So I thought I'd just share a few thoughts about in-laws. Why? Because Many such relationships with a mother-in-law or father-in-law are not what you would call warm and affectionate, but instead can be quite the opposite, contentious and hostile. It could be said that even many of you have struggles with your own in-laws, or as some people in some settings, hopefully never here, would call them not in-laws, but outlaws. I distinctly remember years ago when Barbara and I decided to pull our children out of a Christian school and begin homeschooling. We decided it would be good to meet with those, both sets of parents and let them know our plans, realizing they probably weren't going to be totally in favor of that decision. My parents in particular weren't thrilled at all with that decision and asked lots of questions concerning our children's education how we could teach them. And then the more probing question of socialization, how are they going to socialize? It was a bit tense. And yet uh, in the weeks and months following, uh, my sweet wife just continued to love my parents. They were her in-laws. She strove for a great relationship. And guess what? In a matter of time, my parents were thrilled with homeschooling. In fact, they were our chief cheerleaders. They just loved it that we were homeschooling. 
Often though, it's those kind of situations that can cause deep strife and hurt. Words are said and as such relationships can be hindered indefinitely. There's like a wall. I want to share a few examples that I've seen over the years in talking to different people pertaining to mother-in-law and father-in-law. And these can often lead to conflict. First, the overbearing in-law. One who insists on overseeing every aspect of the marriage or parenting. I would call this the meddler. Secondly, the distant in-law. One who is just the opposite of overbearing, being uninvolved altogether, rarely communicates even to his or her own grandchildren or children. Thirdly, the judgmental in-law. One who disproves of every decision made and is openly critical to others both within and outside the family. Now if you are a mother-in-law or a father-in-law, you may be thinking, this isn't me. But honestly, haven't all of us in this role at one time or another observed a decision by a son-in-law and your daughter or a daughter-in-law and your son and thought to yourself, they're making a big mistake. I know I've been guilty of this. And I know that's exactly what my parents thought when Barbara and I announced we were homeschooling. So what do we do when these differences occur with our mother-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law? A few thoughts. First, extend grace. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians 4. What does this verse say? Be kind. That's your words. Be tender-hearted. That's your actions. Be forgiving. You may not agree with the decisions made or the counsel given, but appreciate your family for who they are and the reasoning they offer. Speaking of my father-in-law, I know he's 95 years old. He loves to give counsel. And the fact that he's 95, he's lived a long life. And he knows a lot. And he's experienced a lot. He has good counsel. Do I always receive it well? I'll talk about that in a few minutes. So, extend grace. Secondly, extend love. You all know the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And what is the second? Found in Matthew 22. It's almost easy. Well, it is easier to love the Lord than it is sometimes your neighbors. Your in-laws are not only your neighbors, but they are part of your family. So we are to love them as we love ourselves. I remember when Barb's mom was still alive. She was very outspoken about her feelings and beliefs. And we, all, we had many conversations where her opinions and her conclusions weren't mine at all. I really loved her dearly. She was my wife's mother. When she was in her last days, she only lived to be 60. When she was in her last days, I visited her in the hospital. She is very, very sick. 
It was just her and me in that room. And we had such a special time together. I specifically recall her taking my hand and I knew it was, I probably wouldn't see her again. But she said, take care of my daughter. Take care of my husband. They were special times. And I thought, that bedside conversation would have never taken place if our disagreements had ended the relationship. Extend grace, extend love, extend peace. Hebrews 12, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail or fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. As in-laws may, as in-laws may all of us ask God to control our tongues <clears throat> and our tempers when feelings have been hurt, and instead extend grace and love and peace. Back to our text, verse 8. There is a theme here that I don't want you to miss. And that theme is deliverance. In verse 8, Moses begins to testify to all that God had done for the Israelites in delivering them out of Pharaoh's hand. And Jethro rejoiced in verse 9 for all the goodness the Lord had shown in such deliverance. And then in verse 10, Jethro blessed and praised the Lord again for delivering them out of the hand of the Egyptians, for delivering them out of the hand of Pharaoh, and for delivering the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Five times we see the word deliverance or delivering, which in the Hebrew text is the word natsal, meaning to rescue, to deliver, to save. It's a perfect illustration or shadow of the New Testament and what the Lord has done in our lives in delivering us from the bondage of sin. He rescued us, he delivered us, he saved us. This is the gospel message of salvation and God merits all praise and glory for this deliverance and rescue in our own lives. The question for all of you is, do you know this great Savior? Jethro did, for as in verse 11, Jethro embraced the truth that God, the Lord is greater than all gods. And in verse 12, his conversion is outwardly evidenced by offering a burnt offering, which is understood to be both an atonement and an appeal for forgiveness for any past and future sins when standing before the great Yahweh. Commentators go on to say that eating a meal together with other worshipers of God signified he was accepted into genuine fellowship. Or as John 9.25 John so clearly says, the conversion of a soul. I was blind, but now I see. As I said at the beginning of the message, in order to focus on our priorities and not let the urgent keep us from the really important things, we must keep the main thing, the main thing. So from this first section, the application priority, I'll leave with you. To keep at the forefront of your life here on this earth is simply the issue of salvation. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I was thinking the wisest leadership counsel that I could give to you as an elder in this church is to put your faith and trust in Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him. The one priority 
in life that has to be at the very top of your list. It has to be there. For if it is not, you are doomed for eternal destruction. So many people fill their lives with the selfish things of the world, trying to find happiness, trying to find purpose, trying to find out what really matters in life. And the answer is so simple and found right here in God's Word. It is Christ. He is the only one who can rescue, deliver, and save. Second section is verses 13 through 27. So follow along as I read this. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou alone, thyself alone, and all the people stand by thee from morning until even? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. That will surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy. It's too much for thee. Thou art not able to form it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, and thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And it shall be that every great matter that they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard causes they brought into Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away into his own land. I called this second section Jethro's Wise Counsel. As we see in this story, the very next day, Moses set to judge the people from morning until evening. If you picture the fact that there's two million people all together, you can also reason that there will be multiple disputes arising on a daily basis. Therefore, Moses had a big responsibility, for he was like the judge, the counselor, the police, the theologian, and the pastor all in one man. For as verses 13 and 14 say, the people stand all around all day waiting to get his counsel. Jethro then asks Moses, why is this? To which Moses responds in verses 15 and 16, because the people come to me to get God's counsel. When the people have a matter, I act as judge and respond according to the statutes and the laws of God. He was basically, they need me. I, I have to do this. It is at this point that Jethro responds in verse 17, the thing that thou doest is not good. As I thought about this statement, 
This would be a hard pill to swallow. For Moses would seem to be re receiving this as something very critical. Could have been easily interpreted that way, at least from my understanding and in my way of thinking. It would be like my own father-in-law saying, Brad, the thing which you are doing is not good. As I said earlier, I love my father-in-law very much, but would I respond to this statement in a defensive way? Try to argue why it is good? I could very well see myself wanting to justify my actions or selfishly thinking, well, he doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know all the facts and why I'm doing this. Or would I instead extend grace and extend love and extend peace? As we see Moses' reaction, it appears that's exactly what Moses did. There's not a defense, not a negative reaction. He just listens to the counsel of Jethro. And he lets Jethro continue. Continue to expound on this. Verses 18 through 23. The danger. You will surely wear yourself out for doing it alone. It is too much for you. Burnout. No man can possibly minister to two million people and last very long. Secondly, the advice. 19 through 22. Moses was to choose out of the people able men such as fear God. Men of truth. Men that hate covetousness and set them up as rulers. He was then to teach them ordinances and laws and by example show them the way wherein they must walk and the work they must do. Following that, Moses was to organize the camp such that every ten people had somebody to talk to about civil problems. If a ruler of ten couldn't solve the issue, it was referred to a ruler of fifty and then to a hundred and then a thousand. And if still not resolved, it would be referred to Moses himself. And then lastly, the action. Jethro tells Moses that after considering his counsel, he should seek God's direction. And if the Lord gives affirmation, then he should proceed. Now I will tell you, there are some commentators for this section who would say that Jethro was a meddler. He should have minded his own business because God could have enabled Moses by himself to get the job done each and every day. They say if the Lord wanted Moses to have help, he would have told Moses personally. But thinking through this, Jethro's counsel didn't command Moses to follow orders, but urged him to speak to the Lord about what Jethro was seeing and obey what God said. It was a relationship that he had with Moses that was really a key to me. That love, that respect. So after seeking the Lord, Moses felt the counsel was good. For in verses 24 through 26, it says that he hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said by choosing able men to, head over, to be heads over the people and certain rulers to be over thousands, some over hundreds, some over fifties, and some over tens. And they judged the people with only the hard and difficult cases coming before Moses himself. It was at this point that the chapter ends in verse 27 and Jethro departed back into his own land. Which brings me to my second application priority of keeping the main thing the main thing. While on the first section the words of counsel were do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? My second word of counsel would be are you living 
for Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. As a believer, if knowing that's only what done for Christ will last, then we must keep that our main priority and the most important thing in our daily lives. We sang the hymn right before this service, Living for Jesus. I'd encourage you to really think about the words. I'm only going to give you the first verse. Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou in thy atonement did give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. I read this true story and I thought, for we as elders here at this church, it's very meaningful. The true story is told about a pastor who made this statement from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. I just want all of you to know that I am available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Now that seems like a great statement to show a pastor's willingness to meet any and every need of the congregation. Yet the story goes on after making that statement. A man, a godly man, came up to the pastor after the service and said, So, you're going to be available to me 24 hours a day, every day of the week? To which the pastor responded with a big smile, That's correct. There was a long pause followed by these words of counsel. If you are available to me and everyone else in the assembly, 24 hours a day, then when do you ever have time personally for God, for your wife, or for your family? If you fail to make yourself available in those areas, then you will be of little value to me, even if I can reach you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It could be very well said that Moses was heading down that same path of urgency by burning the candle at both ends, trying to do everything by himself and missing the importance of prioritizing the Lord in his own life. Even the Lord himself did not purpose to minister alone, but called his 12 disciples to follow him and be trained. Christ also set a great example, for though he ministered to the masses, he frequently withdrew for the important times of fellowship with his father, putting God first over the tyranny of the urgent. I often think of the question and response I hear when I ask a really busy person, how was your quiet time today? I frequently hear, I, I, I just didn't have time. Do you want to avoid burnout? Then keep the main thing, the main thing, and prioritize living for Christ in everything you do. He is the only stable foundation that will keep you from the sinking sand of burnout. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. It's so practical how we can fill our lives with everything except you. How we can be so busy we don't have time to meet with you in the morning or meet with you at night or spend time praying, spend time reading your word, spend time meditating, seeking each day to put you first. 
Lord, forgive us when we do that. Forgive me when the sense of urgency comes before the sense of priority of putting you first. So I pray, Lord, you'd work in our hearts, help us to see that, and make us people who would reflect uh, your glory. Let's praise in Christ's name. Amen.